So over the next few weeks, uh, we're starting a brand new series. I mentioned this earlier. What we're going to do is we're going to present the Christmas story to you as we have received it from the four biographers of Jesus Christ. Four authors who were there. Four people who knew Jesus. Four people who were friends of Jesus. They were disciples of Jesus. Eyewitnesses to what Jesus did. They heard the things that he said. They were beneficiaries of his earthly ministry. People who truly knew who he was. So, I don't want to get the Christmas season too much off on a downer. However, uh, sometimes Pastor Harold and I are called on to uh, speak at people's funerals, to eulogize them, to, to speak about the person as we lay them to rest. And it's an honor and a weighty privilege to be able to stand in front of their families and friends and describe the person who has passed on. It's a privilege, it's an honor, but it's weighty and it is a responsibility. And the very best eulogies, the ones that warm your heart, the ones that comfort your weariness, the ones that make you smile in remembrance, the best eulogies, the ones that make you recollect with joy, they're spoken from the perspective of people who knew the deceased very well. When you look up the word eulogy, it's obviously a noun. I don't know why we put that up there, but eulogy is a noun. Eulogy is a noun. It's a, a commendatory and elaborate discourse or writing delivered in a formal and dignified manner, especially in honor of one deceased. It is high praise. Eulogies are a purposeful moment to bring dignity, to bring honor, to bring praise in remembrance of a person's life. So the Bible gives four biographic accounts of Jesus' life. They remember him. They give honor to him. They paint a picture of who he was, what he did, and how he lived. It's funny, I was telling the people uh, upstairs earlier, we always pray before the service, and this is a funny series because we're supposed to look at the Christmas account in each of the four Gospels of Jesus Christ. However, John, the one that we're looking at today, doesn't even talk about Christmas. So thank you, Bobby Harrell, for giving that one to me today. Um, but we are starting Christmas looking at the account from John. Um, Matthew begins his discourse. So again, we have four different biographies of Jesus. Matthew begins his discourse by discussing the genealogy of Jesus. So before becoming a follower of Jesus, Matthew was a publican. A publican, or rather it's He's a person of Jewish descent that the Roman government contracted to collect taxes for Rome to the betrayal of his own people. Okay, so this is why he's not super popular when, when we meet him first. It's not just, oh, he's a tax collector, he's collecting our taxes. No, he's a, a Jewish person who has been subcontracted by Rome to reclaim Jewish money for Rome. So he's definitely not a popular guy to the Jews. But this does tell us who he is and the perspective that he gives when we hear him talk about Jesus. So, in fact, part of the job of being a publican or a tax collector is the process of meticulous recording and documentation of people's tax obligations. What a fun guy. He's a scribe. So when we look at how he talks about Jesus, when we look at how he biographizes Jesus... You have to know that it's from a very meticulous, scribal perspective. When he gets, sits down to reflect on Jesus' ministry, when he really gathers his thoughts and eulogizes his ministry, it makes sense that he would do so methodol uh, me 
Methodically is the word. <laughs> Methodically. It's a good word. Um, he takes you on a journey of family history. He takes you from Abraham to David all the way to Jesus. And in doing so, his message is that his story is a true story with verifiable details. In fact, Matthew's genealogy includes all kinds of people that would never normally be in a genealogy. And it's funny because people just skip over those verses. They are rich in content because you deal with people that never would have expected that they would be in the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. But Matthew includes them because they're important people. But that's not the sermon we're preaching today. For Matthew, if you were to tell Jesus' story, you'd have to start with the analysis of background. Mark tells the story very differently. Mark's account is by far the shortest. So when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark's like this big and the rest are this big. Mark is short and makes a great deal of emphasis on the authority of Jesus as the Son of God as well as the purposeful and compassionate way that Jesus served the people. So when Mark tells the story of Jesus, it's not just about the fine details. Instead, Mark wants you to know Jesus served the people. He was purposeful, he was compassionate, and he served people. So throughout, throughout Mark's discourse, he's quick, he's concise, he doesn't give much more information than what is required. There's a sense of urgency when you read the book of Mark. Quick, I want you to know about my friend Jesus. So in telling his story, he doesn't even feel like the birth of Jesus is an important detail to discuss. Because he's talking about how Jesus served the people. And talking about the birth of Jesus doesn't really contribute to that narrative that he's giving when talking about the story of Jesus. Mark just skips over it. And this is often called the narrative of omission, because by not discussing Jesus' birth, he's making a, a, a very particular statement that a servant is not defined by his lineage, but rather by his service. So for Mark, if you were to tell Jesus' story, you would jump right into the action of Jesus' ministry. You would jump right into the very service to the people because that is the slant that he wants to give you when you read about Jesus. If you want to know who Jesus is, ask the people he spent time with. Mark wants you to know Jesus was a servant. Luke is a trained physician. He was a ministry companion of Paul. He starts his account with these words, and it's funny because he's a doctor. This is how he talks. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write you in an orderly sequence. So Luke, from the very beginning, tells you, I'm going to be orderly, we're going to be sequential, we're going to give you details, we're going to be purposeful in that. And he wants it to be very clear. This is the way I'm coming across to you. Just from his tone, you can see his point of view coming across. He is going to tell Jesus' story in an orderly and detailed manner. Luke pays special attention. This is important. He's paid special attention to the marginalized and the people most in need of care. Because remember, he's a doctor. He cares about the people who need care. And all throughout Luke's gospel account, he pays great attention to precision of detail. For Luke, if you were to tell Jesus' story, you would be thorough. In fact, people don't know this. If, if I were to ask you who's the, the most prominent New Testament author, most people would say Paul, because we've got you know, like 700 books of his in the New Testament. Um, it's actually Luke, because Luke is known to have written Luke and is the probable author of Acts. And Luke writes the vast majority of your New Testament. 
because he's precise, he's methodical, and he gives you all the details that you need to know. So then there's John. John is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I especially love this because he calls himself that. Um, so when you're reading, you know, it, it doesn't say, you know, Matthew doesn't say, you know, he's the disciple Jesus loved. John says that he is the disciple Jesus loved. Um, but when Jesus has all of his big New Testament moments, John is standing there in the crowd with the rest of the disciples. But when Jesus pulls aside his closest friends, so when he pulls aside his 12, John is still there, and then when he pulls even closer to the people he cares for the most, his closest and most trusted friends, you find Peter, you find James, and you find John. When Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, he only allows these three to join him. When Jesus goes up to the mountaintop, he's transfigured. He talks to Moses and Elijah. There are three confidants that Jesus allows to join him. It's Peter, James, and John. When Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray on the night of his betrayal, he calls on three people to keep watch with him. It's Peter, James, and John. When Jesus is up on the cross, he's dying. He gives care of his mother to one person. He says, this is is now your mother, take care of her. He was talking to John. John is known as a pillar of the church, as a father of the faith, and he has that distinction. Because if someone were to want to know who Jesus was, they'd ask the person he was closest to. So when we're talking about what his story looks like, we're saying, okay, what is the story of Jesus? Well, I think John's a pretty great person to ask. And I think he does a pretty good job of telling you who he is. All through the book of John, you can hear the earnestness in the way that John approaches talking about his Savior. He's like, I want to tell you about my best friend. And I want you to understand him as well as I do. And I want you to be sure that you know how special he was. And I need you to know that my friend is God himself and he loves you and he cares for you and he wants to know you as deeply as he knows me. For John, if you were to tell his story of Jesus, you would be telling the story of Jesus' love. What we know about Jesus Christ coming to earth, these four men taught us. What we know about his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, we know it because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John spent the time eulogizing and remembering their Savior so that we could then understand him more fully. I mean, who is more qualified with particular intel on Jesus? Who better to tell his story? So this Christmas season, we're digging deep into the opening of his story. We're diving into four different authors bringing their own unique and individual perspectives to each tell their version of the same story, and we'll begin this whole series with John's Christmas wish. Again, John is one of Jesus' very best friends. He's the one specifically mentioned as the disciple whom he loved. How does he approach Jesus' story? What imagery does he use to encourage us and to express the emotions about Christmas? Well, John's Christmas story doesn't begin with a manger. John's Christmas story doesn't have shepherds. There are no camels. There's no wise men. When John speaks about Christ's origin, he goes all the way back to the beginning, even to creation. 
John tells us that long before there was Christmas, there was God. John's Christmas story takes us back to eternity past when the Son of God was just called the Word. Let's begin in John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is being portrayed as the living communication of God to man. He is the Word of God, and he is God. He is the living communication, the link between us and God. The Word, Jesus Christ, was with God in the beginning, and the Word, Jesus Christ, was God. In verse 2 it says, He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. John tells us that Jesus is the Son of God, and he was not only with the Creator, but he is the very Creator of the universe. So, then where was Jesus before Bethlehem? And where was he at? If he was there from the beginning, where is he the whole time? Well, John, John's gospel account doesn't go into the Christmas story as we know it. Very little of our Christmas, Christmas traditions are rooted in what we learn from the book of John. But even still, John is not silent on the birth of Christ. Instead, he is purposeful to tell us that Christmas has its roots in events that happened way back in the beginning. We can't truly appreciate the presence of the manger unless we first know who was present in the formation of all creation. That's a solid wordplay. I feel good about that. <laughs> John tells us, no, no, the writer of Hebrews also validates this. So John says this, Jesus has been present for all of time. The writer of Hebrews also says this. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 2, it says, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. God has spoken to us through his Son. The Word was with God and the Word was was God. Then Paul, in Colossians, his letter to the church there, he validates John's assertion in the same way. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 16 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he's talking specifically about Jesus Christ. So if John were to put a title on, on the version of his story, it would be the Son of God. More than any of the other gospel writers, John was Jesus' best friend, and yet he wants you to know that Jesus wasn't just a man, he was God. We know this too, because John records seven, seven different titles that Jesus uses for himself to call himself the Almighty God. Each title begins with two words reserved for God and God alone, which are I am, which we find in the Old Testament. This is very important, and that would be just a fascinating study on your own. Do a study of the I am statements of the Bible, but all through John. John is recording Jesus asserting himself to be God in these statements. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. John 8:12 I am the light of the world. John 10:7 I am the gate for the sheep. John 10:11 and I am the good shepherd. John 15:1 I am the vine. John 11:25 I am the resurrection and the life. 
John 14, 6, one of the most famous verses in all of time. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So John is very quick to say, listen, Jesus, my best friend, is God. He claimed to be God, and I will continue to affirm that he is God. And that's what he wants you to know most about his best friend. John calls Jesus out to be the only son of God throughout his account. As he nears the end of the story, he calls this out to be his thesis statement, the very reason for his writing. He's going to tell you why he's writing, and it's here. John 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He made it very clear. I'm writing for a particular reason, and that reason is that I want you to know Jesus is God. So John establishes the deity of Jesus. He makes it incredibly clear that Jesus has always been present, even from the beginning of time and all of creation. He is God himself, and through him you have life in his name. But the question still stands, where was Jesus between creation and Bethlehem? Was he absent? Was he just in waiting? Was he purposefully hidden away, awaiting the grand reveal of Christmas? It's a solid question. And in the 4,000 years of the Old Testament, we actually find Jesus appearing and communicating many times, and to many people. But when he appeared, it wouldn't be in the form of the human man Jesus, because the human man Jesus had yet to be born in Bethlehem. You know, over the pandemic, we did an online study, uh, if you recall. We delved into the realms of heaven and earth, the way they are both separate and together, and the way that they interact and intersect and mingle. I sound like an like a online dating site right now. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you didn't tune in for that series, I, I think you should. It's called Heaven and Earth. It's on our website. You should listen to it. Because for me, it was transformative in the way I understand our present reality in light of a heavenly realm. It's important to know the way that heaven and earth intersect. And throughout scripture, but especially in the Old Testament, we see heavenly overlap on the earth. Situations where God intervenes or makes himself known and makes himself present in a way that is incomprehensible to the way that we know the world to operate. And oftentimes, we see this particular character in the Old Testament being known as the angel of the Lord. And this, this is a really tricky, really tricky topic, because there's a lot of viewpoints on who this mysterious angel of the Lord is throughout the Old Testament. This isn't an angel in the sense of just a, a heavenly messenger. This angel of the Lord is more confusing. People didn't walk away from interactions in the Old Testament with the angel of the Lord and say, oh, God sent an angel with a message. No, instead, they walked away with the sense that God himself sent them a message. So there's a difference there. Some even knew that who they were talking to was more than an angel. But most didn't realize it until after they were done talking to him. This one very special angel didn't fit the mold of the rest. And I really like the ministry of the angel of the Lord because it's oftentimes very encouraging in the way that he interacts with people. He meets Abraham and Sarah for dinner in Genesis chapter 18. And they laugh and they have a great time. They eat. And the elderly and barren old couple was promised a child. And they named that little boy Isaac, which means laughter, or the one who laughs because it was hilarious that they would be having a baby. 
in their age. But the angel of the Lord is the one who told them that. We also learn about Hagar. This is Abraham and Sarah's runaway slave from Egypt. The angel of the Lord meets with this outcast and mistreated girl, and he promises safety to both her and her child. This is in Genesis chapter 16. The angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roy. For she said, In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me? Which, by the way, again, a complete tangent. This is the first time in the Bible that God is given a name. That's a whole different story. Um, He promises strength in her lineage. She recognizes that she has seen the one who has seen her. She recognizes that she has seen God himself through this angel of the Lord. So the angel of the Lord is the Lord. So uh, he also appeared to Gideon and also to Samson's parents. Let me just read these for you. Uh, Then Manoah said to him, this is in Judges chapter 13, what is your name? so that we may honor you when your words come true. Why do you ask my name? The angel of the Lord asked him, since it is beyond understanding. In Judges 13, just a few verses later, again, to Samson's parents, they say, we're certainly going to die, he said to his wife, because we have seen God. So when they saw the angel of the Lord, they recognized it being some kind of viewing of God himself. And all these instances are similar to other Old Testament prophets and people, people like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, who have described um, having visions of, of a heavenly being sitting up on a throne in a glorious figurement. It, it, it's, it's all part of the same story that's being told. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses as well in Exodus chapter 3. You know this story. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. The angel of the Lord appears to Moses from within the burning bush, and God himself is the one who calls back out to him. The names used here interchangeably are angel of the Lord, the Lord, and God. And eventually, Moses would learn that the one he sees in the bush is the same who would lead Israel out of Egypt and eventually take a rightful place in the tabernacle on the throne of God himself. The guys at the Bible Project says, the angel of the Lord is the royal glory of Yahweh appearing as a human. So, when John opens his story, he identifies Jesus as being both with God as well as being God. And this is the same kind of language used to describe the angel of the Lord. Earlier I mentioned John was present for the transfiguration of Jesus. And this is a moment in time where Christ's heavenly identity was revealed on earth. He was transformed 
into a glorious figure. So while the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is God interacting with humans like a human, Jesus now closes that circle with God, now having actually become human. He is the one the Old Testament prophets saw on the throne. And beginning with his birth, Jesus is able to fully realize the unification of heaven and earth. In the Old Testament, you're reading about a pre-manger, pre-Bethlehem, pre-human appearance of the Son of God as the angel of the Lord. And John's story tells us that the first Christmas may have happened in Bethlehem, but the planning for Christmas and the Christ of Christmas has been getting things prepared for the big event for quite some time. God has always been present and active in the lives of his people. But the fulfillment of the Messiah was still yet to come. 4,000 years, and God's followers still had never experienced the fullness of the fulfilled hope of Christmas. There was a time when Christmas was only a wish. We've never really considered winter without Christmas, especially in Texas. We have spring, we have summer, we have five minutes of fall, and then we have Christmas season. And it's not even just a day, right? Winter is synonymous with the season of celebration. But imagine having a life with winter, but no Christmas. A few years ago, a pastor used this quote. I really loved it, and it's really stuck with me. C.S. Lewis wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia this very thing. So the inhabitants of Narnia are living lives of hopelessness and dark despair. There was no Christmas. It says this, always winter and never Christmas. Think of that. How awful, said Lucy. You know, I feel a little sad for the people living in the Old Testament. For them, it would always be winter, but they would never really experience Christmas. For them, Christmas was only a wish. They longed for Christmas. They hoped for Christmas, but Christmas would never come in their lifetime. And although it's hard for me to imagine a world without Christmas, you know, the idea honestly isn't too far-fetched. Even now, our society is filled with loud voices trying to get rid of Christmas. So the content of the carols, the image of the nativity, the recognition of Advent each year, Christmas becomes less and less about the holiness of the holiday and more about the commercialization of the season. Americans, this is fascinating, are projected to spend $850 billion for Christmas this year. And listen, nothing brings me happiness quite like buying gifts for people for Christmas. I love it. I love buying people gifts. I love decorating the house for Christmas. I love getting Christmas cards. I love all of it. I get it. But there's an obvious trend away from a purposeful focus on Christ at Christmas. In the United States, this is incredible, 96% of Americans celebrate Christmas. 96%. However, only 65% of Americans identify as being Christians, which, by the way, was 75% in 2015. We're seeing a quickly increasing shift towards the appropriation of a sacred celebration to being more identified with the season and less with the person for whom Christmas receives its name. Of course, those who 
oppose Christmas, aren't, they're not offended by the strong retail sales. They like that $850 billion number. They're not offended by that. They're not offended by Santa or lights or trees or whatever or gift giving. And I'm not you know, speaking against those things right now. But we know that the point of contention is not the holiday itself, but in the holy day. But if you take Christ out of Christmas, you have nothing. If you take Christ out of Christmas, you take us back to the darkness of ancient times. If you take Christ out of history, you have only winter, but never Christmas. And this is exactly how the world was thousands of years ago. There was a time when there was no fulfillment of Christmas. In those times, Christmas was only a wish. Hebrews 10.11 says this, Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. Old Testament sacrifices did not take away sins. They were just a band-aid for a greater solution. The priests and the people of Old Testament times could only look forward with anticipation of a Messiah, knowing that what they were doing was good, but not quite good enough. Their sacrifices only provided a way to deal with their sins. They had yet to experience the freedom that was found in their sins being fully forgiven, no longer held against their account. So there was no celebration that God had delivered on his biggest promise, because that promise was still in waiting. There is no song to rejoice in the fact that Christ the Savior is born. There is no joy to the world. There is no message of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. There is only winter, but never Christmas. And just like Lucy in Narnia says, how awful. Does anyone really want to take society back to a time when there was no Christmas? No, of course not. However, God always promised that Christmas would come. In the days when there was no Christmas, God sent prophets to give hope to mankind that one day there would be the fulfilling hope found in Christmas. Followers of God could continue forward knowing that there was reasonable hope that would be fulfilled in their faithfulness. Micah 5.2 says this, Bethlehem, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. When Jesus came to this earth in Bethlehem, it wasn't his first visit to the planet by any means. He had been present and active all of time. And the promise that God made of his presence was one that was rooted in reality. There were no conditions, you know, do this and then he'll come. There was no blind awaiting, just keep hoping, fingers crossed he'll be here. The coming of the Messiah was a just wait, he is coming promise. He will come, he will rule. His origin is from antiquity. The King James Version says he comes from everlasting. God spoke in the days of the prophets that God would come and live with us. In Isaiah 7, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. And to the people reading that, they knew immediately, because Emmanuel literally means God with us. So from even the Old Testament prophets, the promise is made that God would come to dwell with his people, and when that happened, he would be then forever 
with us. John's account of Jesus' story is really interesting to me because it starts in creation and then jumps all the way to Jesus' adulthood. So we just kind of conveniently gloss over the rest, right? We're right at the cusp of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus, well, the story skips over Jesus as a baby. John skips over anything about his upbringing. Instead, John's first chapter tells the story of another John, John the Baptist, who, by the way, was not Baptist denominationally, but John the Baptizer. The priests and the, and the Levites come to him, and they ask him, who are you? And John the Baptist tells them, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. So they command them. They command him. Tell us something about who you are. Tell us something about yourself. And John responds by quoting the prophet Isaiah. Which I'm going to read. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice, and again this is where John's quoting right here, a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up, every mountain and hill will be leveled, the uneven ground will become smooth, and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So John the Baptist says, I am the voice crying out. Prepare the way for the Lord. He's coming. The glory of the Lord will appear. All of humanity will see it. The Lord spoke it. He is coming. And then the very next day in John, John sees Jesus coming toward him and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Here he is. Here is the one I told you about. This is what the Lord promised to us. This is Jesus, and he is God. Winter for the soul is now banished, and for us, Christmas is the celebration that we live in spiritual springtime year-round where faith can be cultivated, grow, and then multiply because Jesus fulfilled the promises of God. Isaiah 9 says this, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Ever Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And as we celebrate Christ's birth, we're inspired to give gifts because Jesus himself was a gift to humanity. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. The gift of Jesus is the gift that inspires all other gifts. And when God gave us his son, it meant a child would be born, but not just any child. God would transform himself into a human embryo secured into the womb of Mary. The son of God would make his entrance into the human race to become our savior. And John's take 
on Jesus' story is important because all of Christmas hinges on Jesus being not only the promised gift of God, but God himself. So no, we don't have a classic nativity moment in this book. We don't, we don't have the manger, we don't have the shepherds, we don't have the whole Christmas story in the way that we're used to reading it in this book. But John does give us one of the greatest Christmas verses in our Bible where God delivers on his promise. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observed his glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's account begins in creation. But have you ever noticed how it ends? This is fascinating to me. I I love this. The very last verse of the book of John says this. And there were also so many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose... Not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. John wanted you to know that his friend was God. He chose to describe him from a heavenly perspective. He could have written down all of the details of every story that pertained to Jesus' life on earth. Surely they had countless stories to tell. You know that they had inside jokes that he could have shared, situations that would help us to truly understand every detail of Jesus' life. But John said, listen, the whole world couldn't contain that story. So there's one story that's more important than all those details. If there's anything I want you to know more than anything, it would be that Jesus isn't just the gift from God. He is God. He is God. And that is why we celebrate Christmas. Would you guys bow your heads with me? I honestly believe some of you have yet to trust in Jesus as God himself. God is able to forgive and save those who have messed up so badly that they don't know where to turn. And you have an opportunity to begin that personal relationship with Jesus today. Where the Old Testament people and prophets and priests all awaited with hope and expectation, you can now experience in full fruition through Jesus. He's strong enough to bear your problems. He's also loving enough to forgive you. God has done his part, and now it's time for us to do our part. Believe on him. Receive him as your Savior today, and then you can become his disciple. And a disciple is someone who is following Christ and being changed through an ever-deepening relationship to become more like Christ. And if this is a journey that you want to go on, if you're ready to accept Jesus as your Savior today, I promise there will be people available to walk you through that. If you need to know Jesus today, there will be deacons up at the front when the service ends. And they can help you truly understand what it means to make Christ your Savior and Lord. And if you are a disciple of Christ, remember how Jesus is referred, or how John is referred. He's referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loves. This is not exclusive to John. Are you a disciple of Christ? Because if you are, then you have a specific and wonderful reason to celebrate this Christmas. Because you too are a disciple that God himself chooses to love. Let's pray together. God, we are forever thankful 
that you are the fulfillment of every promise. We celebrate knowing that every bit of meaning in this Christmas season is from you. We have hope knowing that you have proven yourself over and over, time and time again, and we have confidence in you because you've given us every reason to trust you. And God, I ask that you give us the strength that we need to serve you as our God. Thank you for the incredible work you've displayed to us and allow us to continue in your mission and continue to work to display the hope that's found in you, especially this season when the world so desperately craves hope in anything else. We love you. This is all in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. For months now, we've ended our services with a recitation of the Apostles' Creed which has been incredible. I think it's really important for us to know what we believe and be able to recite that. Today I want to go back to the words of the prophet Isaiah. These words were spoken together and over the people as they anxiously awaited the promised Messiah. Today we will recite them in reflection of the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Would you read along with me? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Listen, the oldest known biblical text that has been spoken over believers for thousands of years are found in the book of Numbers. These verses were found in amulets and graves older than any surviving copy of the Hebrew Bible. The words have comforted, encouraged, and brought peace to Christians through history. And today, I want to close by speaking these words over you now. Number 6, 24 through 26 says, May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace especially this Christmas season. Make sure you grab your Advent books as you leave, and have a wonderful week. Thanks, guys.